I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. This mother's behavior after the death of her two-year-old daughter would be used by authorities as evidence of her guilt. But with major doubts around her case, was justice served or is time running out for an innocent woman? This is the Melissa Lucio story. Hi, Megan. Hey, Aim. How are you today? I'm great. What's going on? Yeah. We have an important case here. We do. I'm feeling like not as chipper as usual. I always love recording with you, but this is a very important episode. And I urge listeners, don't take our word for anything. I want you to take action after you do your own research. We'll tell you the story. We'll tell you what we think. But I think it's important that everyone just digs into this a little bit. I know this one was kind of like weighing on you because of the and and listeners will hear why it's so important. And it's, you know, I'm going to tell them up front that Melissa is scheduled to be executed not long from now, April 27th, 2022, in less than two months from now. Wow, we're getting close. Very close. And you know, I don't I didn't even know her story. That's the problem. Yeah, that's exactly the problem. We were very fortunate to speak with Vanessa Potkin, who was the director of special litigation at the Innocence Project. And as we'll talk about in the episode, the Innocence Project has recently joined Melissa's defense team because they fully believe in her innocence. And Vanessa does a much better job explaining the very complicated appeals process in Melissa's case. So stick around after the episode. You'll be able to hear from Vanessa herself. And Vanessa will also give us some very concrete action items on how we could support Melissa's fight. Excellent. Thanks, Amy. As we see a lot, things can change. You know, she can still get an appeal. She could get a temporary stay of execution. She could also get a pardon. Right. We know there are options for her, but this case is not getting nearly as much attention. Um, Although in the last few weeks it has picked up, I think, and as you'll hear why things have picked up. Okay, yeah, I'm not going to, let's not front load too much. All right. Melissa Lucio was born on July 18th, 1968 in the Rio Grande Valley city of Harlingen, Texas, which is in the southern part of Texas, actually very close to the Mexican border, about less than 30 miles away. So it's very south Texas. Yep. Melissa grew up in a Catholic Mexican-American family. She had several siblings. The family was very close, but they struggled financially by all accounts. They lived in extreme poverty growing up. Unfortunately, when she was just six years old, Melissa reports being sexually abused by two adult male relatives. So as if this isn't bad enough, even worse, you know, she tried to get help by telling her mother, but her mother brushed it off and didn't believe her and just thought she was being, you know, a young kid who doesn't really know what she's saying. 
So there was really no action taken at this time. And because of this event and the lack of action, this was the start of a pattern of sexual abuse and assault that continued for several years. And as Melissa would say, she just accepted this. This was normal to her. Well, when, you know, the adults in your life don't believe you and the other ones are just continuing, I mean, it's very hard for a child. Yeah, so it's a very rough start for Melissa. And at the young age of 16, she got married, leaving the family home. And I thought it was interesting that she actually was below the legal age of marriage in Texas, but her mother consented to the marriage. I don't think it's surprising given what you just told me about her mother dismissing her allegations of sexual assault. Yes. There's very little info out there on her husband, but he was reportedly violent toward her and he abused alcohol and sold drugs. Melissa says she felt trapped in this relationship. I mean, she was a child, you know, and that she also developed a substance use problem herself. Now, by the age of 24, Melissa had five children with this husband and things are not going good. Other, you know, besides the fact that there's violence, there's substance Mm. abuse, they're struggling tremendously financially. And then things got temporarily worse for Melissa when one day her husband left and never returned. Now, he left this young mother with five children to essentially fend for themselves. And from what I understand, he never had contact again with the children. I can't imagine this. So I said things got worse, but now I'm thinking if he was abusive, you know, maybe it's for the better that he left, but it's still for this young mother. Of course it's for the better, but she's financially now alone and has to deal with all these issues on her own and five children. That's really hard for a young mother, for any mother. Yeah. Well, luckily she did meet another man, Robert Alvarez. The two moved in together and they had a very close relationship. She refers to him as her husband, but I'm not sure if they were legally married. Regardless, they were in a union together and the couple had seven children together. In addition to her five? Yep. So now they, so they have, have 12 children. So they have 12 children and the family's struggling. They were homeless at times, you know, several periods of homelessness. Other times they bounce from apartment to apartment. And I'm talking about apartments that have one to two rooms for a family of 14. The children relied on free meals through a local organization. And although the parents did work hard, there's reports that both Melissa and Robert worked odd end jobs to try to make ends meet. They really couldn't. I mean, things were tough for them. And some children ended up being taken away by Child Protective Services and not because of abuse or anything, but just because of neglect. Right. Because I imagine with that many children and trying to work and having to take odd end jobs, probably weren't not around a lot. I mean, just it's just a lot to handle. So at the time we're going to be talking about, there were nine children that lived with the family. Mm -hmm. The other children were living with other family members. Got it. And there's a big range in age with these children. I imagine so. So in mid-February of 2007, the family was in the process of moving yet again. So I just want to give you an idea of who's in the household at this time. So you have Melissa and Robert and you have their nine children. Two older girls, Alexandra and Daniela, were the oldest and the youngest was two-year-old Mariah. The remaining five children were older than two years old, but not old enough to be on their own. Got it. Around 6 p.m. on Friday 17th, 2007, paramedics were called to the family's residence where they found an unresponsive two-year-old child laying on the floor. Now, this child was two-year-old Mariah, the youngest in the family. Got it. Melissa told the paramedics that Mariah just never woke up from her nap. And all of the rest of the family corroborated that. You know, Mariah went down for a nap and she just never woke up. Unfortunately, Mariah was pronounced dead upon arrival at the hospital. Soon thereafter, as we would expect, right, who do you think they're going to talk to? Well, our parents, of course. Yeah. So Melissa was taken in for questioning. And what followed was a grueling five to seven hour interrogation. Well, but I also imagine it's because she had charges of neglect and children taken away before. So I think there probably was a presumption already. Um, Yes. And you'll hear in just a moment, you'll also hear why they were quick to look at Melissa. Okay. Um, When they found Mariah, she wasn't in good shape. She had bruising all over her body. So because of the state of the child... And because, you know, they, as they would say during trial, which we'll talk about, but Melissa wasn't really acting like a concerned mother. All right. Well, you know how we feel about affect, but um, she had bruising all over her. Yes. And and Melissa's story at that point was just that she just didn't wake up for a nap. Well, Mariah had fallen down the stairs two days prior to this. And did she, did Melissa tell the police this during her interview? I even think she told probably the paramedics. Okay. Because I think they probably said like, why did, if she just never woke up, why does she look like this? Okay. But Mariah had fallen down the stairs two days prior and at the time did not appear to be injured. And several of the other children in the family witnessed the fall. 
So you can see it online. There was a very old rickety staircase that was outside their last apartment. Remember they had just moved? Oh, yeah. Okay. Now, them moving recently makes things a bit confusing because when Melissa says, oh, she fell down the stairs, the only stairs in the new apartment are like two or three stairs. So I think that set off alarm bells. Like, you're telling me the child got this injured by a fall down these two or three but stairs? But had they moved in those two or three days? They were, yes, they yes they had. So they had literally just So moved. basically, Mariah falls down the stairs, and then they move within the following okay. two days. Okay. Yep. So they take Melissa in. You can see the interrogation mm-hmm. online, which is nice. I'm not sure it's the whole thing, but it's parts yeah. of it, as it usually is. Right. You know, they were berating her, intimidating her. Melissa was actually pregnant with her eighth and ninth child at this time. So she was pregnant with twins. Twins. She was pregnant with twins. And she was grieving, really, I think, in shock, processing the loss of her child. She was pressured repeatedly to admit to harming her daughter. You know, they kept doing like they do. You know, tell us what happened. Tell us what happened. At one point, they even gave her a doll to demonstrate how hard she hit Mariah. And you can see. What do you mean hit Mariah? When did she say she hit Mariah? They didn't. The police said she did. So the interrogators were quick to say, we know that you pretty much beat this child to death. Show us how hard you hit her. So you can you can see this. um, And you could also there's a documentary on this case that I will source to. But on the documentary State of Texas versus Melissa, they have many clips of this. Okay. you can also read some of the interview transcript online. Anyway, while this is going on, this interrogation, the doctor at the hospital reported that Mariah had suffered a broken arm that was left untreated possibly for weeks. Oh, she had serious head injuries and many bruises all over her body in various stages. It was also said that this was the worst case of child abuse that they had ever seen. Well, that's not good. Um, The broken arm for several weeks, that's a, you know, red flag. Because they, I mean, they can definitely tell how, uh, you know, approximate timing. So that's not a two or three day fall. That's that's definitely not a two or three day fall. And they also, I've read different accounts, Mm -hmm. somewhere between two and seven weeks. Because I guess it's probably hard to tell. Yep. So, you know, I did a lot of digging on this. I know. And it seems like it's possible for someone to have a broken bone and not be in pain at that age. Oh, okay. I wouldn't know that. Yeah. So I think children's bones are different. And I know we have some listeners who are doctors, so maybe they could write in and help us understand this a little more. And I'm sure they will. I know. I love it. And, you know, Mariah, she was just two years old. So it's not like she had the verbal. She wasn't able to verbalize what was, you know, what was wrong. But you would think she'd be in some sort of pain. So this gets a little, you know, the the arm becomes something we'll, I think, dissect a bit. So between the fact that they didn't like the way Melissa was responding to this, they said she wasn't near the baby. She wasn't crying. Between that, between the way that she acted during the ter- during the interrogation, they just felt like she like just didn't care and was not really upset. And then you have the doctors, obviously, they're in touch with the detective saying, whoa, this is the worst case of child abuse we've ever seen. And they have on record probably her previous interactions with either, you know, uh, s- social services or. Yeah. So, again, no record of violence, but. Record of drug use, record of neglect. They know that the family's living in poverty. But I think what surprised people was that on May 31st, 2007, Melissa was charged with capital murder. Now, this is the most serious crime in the state of Texas, and it is the state's only offense punishable by death. Is this premeditated? Well, this is the problem because murder means intentionally or knowingly causing the death of an individual. It wasn't the premeditation. It was the fact that there's the aggravating factor of a victim being aged 10 years or younger. I was going to say a child. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, this is a very serious charge. Uh, obviously, she, especially in Texas, you're yeah. facing death penalty. Yeah. So I, I'm sure you're not surprised, Megan, that there was no bail offered in this case. No. Did you know, though, that um, capital murder is the only charge in Texas in which a defendant is not entitled to bond as a general rule? However, it's actually not unheard of to have a capital murder suspect who is able to meet the usually very strict conditions of bond. So there are many cases of people who are being charged with capital murder who do receive bond. Well, because bail historically was supposed to be tied to risk of flight and, you know, not necessarily the seriousness or severity of the alleged crime. Yeah. I mean, I think it's safe to say that even if she had been given bond, she would not be able to afford it Uh, anyway. It doesn't sound like it. What you said. So while Melissa was awaiting trial, she gave birth to twins and she was forced to give them up for adoption. 
Now, I'm surprised you haven't asked where the father, Robert, was and all I, this. I literally was going to say, why is she giving them for adoption if she has a partner? Also, you might wonder, why is Robert not being looked at if he was the other adult in the home? Well, I mean, I, I was, I guess, making an assumption uh-huh. that she was home and yeah. he was not. So Robert, he was being held and he was under investigation at the time the twins were born. He ended up being convicted of the lesser charge of endangering a child, and he was sentenced to four years in prison. For the death of Mariah? or for Okay. And to tell you the truth, I don't know if he was at the scene when the paramedics arrived. I couldn't find that information. So I'm not sure why they were so quick to excuse him and focus on Melissa. But I'm going to imagine it's because he wasn't at the scene and the kids probably corroborated that he was out or mm-hmm. at work or, mm-hmm. you know, somewhere else. Or else I, if, if, he, if he was at the scene, I think they both would have been charged with the same crime. Yeah, you might be right. I'm just surprised that that information is not readily available. Okay. The Cameron County District Attorney at the time, Armando Villalobos, he sought the death penalty. Many people speculated he was quick to seek the death penalty because he was looking at re-election at the time. And he had recently kind of screwed up on a case. There was mm. a case in which a known murderer, pretty much, this guy escaped and it made news and... He was kind of left with egg on his face. So Got it. a lot of people say this was great timing for him because now this would, you know, win him some votes. And he was also looking for a Congress seat. So he needed to show that, you know, he was tough. Right. Melissa's trial began on May 29th, 2008. Now, the prosecution's main theory was very simple. Melissa had intentionally and knowingly killed Mariah by abusing her repeatedly. So essentially, Mariah was beaten to death by her mother, Melissa. Oh, so they don't think that the staircase was even at play. No. They just think, nope. OK, got it. They, they think, yeah, that maybe happened, but that, that's not really got it, relevant. Got it. OK. We had many people testifying. Of course, the first responders testified. And we say this all the time. I even feel silly saying that. But, you know, Melissa's affect at the scene. You know, first responder said she was distanced, not overly distressed, and her behavior was, quote, so far out of the ordinary. I'm not even going to focus on this at all. Unfortunately, you know, jurors hear this and jurors put weight on this kind of thing. I know. And they went on to say the fact that she was not even within an arm's reach of the child, much less trying to hold her. She was not trying to do anything at all for the child. The emergency room physician also testified about all the bruises that were in various stages of healing, also saying Mariah had no apparent signs of a head injury, which means the staircase theory wouldn't even make sense because I think this the staircase theory is saying she fell and hit her head. Yeah, but it could also be like internal bleeding or something. Although I will tell you this, the... The testimony from the doctor with all these bruises and broken bones, that concerns me too. I don't know where we're going yet with this completely, but I will tell you that I think that's significant. Yeah, I promise you we're going to get to all of that. Okay. We're definitely not just glossing over that. Okay. Okay. The state's pathologist who conducted the autopsy testified that Mariah's cause of death was blunt force head trauma, which would have occurred 24 hours prior to her death. Okay, so this conflicts with what the ER or the treating physician said? So it it seems to conflict a little bit because the emergency room physician said no apparent signs of a head injury. So they're talking external, whereas the pathologist internally is saying there was blunt force head trauma that occurred within 24 hours prior to the death. Pathologists would know better because of the extensive work they're going to do on, you know, the autopsy. So and the pathologist went further and said it would have been immediately apparent that Mariah was in distress and in need of medical attention, saying ultimately that these injuries were not consistent with a fall. Okay. wow. There are also uh, the pathologist also said that there were bite marks on the back of the child and again talked about this broken arm that had occurred weeks prior. You want to ask me about these bite marks? <laughs> well, I was going to ask you, but I was going to say they have so many other children, too, that I would think that it could easily have been another small child that yeah, bit her. So I think you're right. A lot of people, though, in the public, when you hear there were bite marks on a child, on a jury hears that. I mean, that sounds pretty damning. There was also one of the Texas Rangers present um, who testified that Melissa had slumped posture. She was acting passive. She didn't make eye contact. And you know what he said? Quote, right there and then, I knew that she did it. Jeez, mm, here so, we go. So, I, I mean, mean, confirmation bias, bias tunnel yeah, vision, yes. all of the bad things. That's a problem when there's a presumption of guilt right from affect. There yeah. you go. And you're going to experience all these, like, the biases through the whole entire process. Now, the strongest piece of evidence, I didn't even tell you yet. Oh. The strongest piece of evidence was from Melissa herself. Quote, I guess I did it. Now, let's talk about how that happened. So she was pressured repeatedly by the police in the interrogation. 
Remember I said five to seven hours? Yep. A lot of reports say five hours. Melissa says six to seven hours. So I'm just going to say five to seven hours. Okay. But regardless, during this time, you know, she wasn't given any breaks. She was in distress. Was it trauma? Shock? She wasn't given food or water, bathroom breaks. The police keep saying to her, and you could hear this in the tapes that are available, they keep saying to her, like, tell us what happened. Tell us what happened. And at some point she says, quote, I don't know what you want me to say. I'm responsible for it. And then later when they asked her about specific bruises on the body, this is when the nail in her coffin came and she said, I guess I did it. I guess I did it. So the jury would see this tape. And of course, they were very influenced by it. The juror doesn't see the whole tape. They see snippets. What's that called when someone, you know, when they false confess because they come to believe that they've done it again? So there's an internalized false confession. But I think this might be more of a compliant coerce, which would be more that she was just like, I need this to stop. And with all the coercion, she kind of would just complied. Uh, Right. If she's she's, exactly if she's innocent. So I think this is problematic, obviously. You know, lay people don't understand false confessions. Mm-hmm. You know, even people that work, you know, it's really hard to wrap your head around because every single person will say, I would never confess to something I didn't do. But we know it happens. About a quarter of wrongful convictions are due to a false confession. Mm-hmm. So the video, as I mentioned earlier, the video had also showed the detectives asking Melissa to demonstrate on a doll and kept saying, didn't you do it harder? Didn't you do it harder? And it's just hard to watch because. She just seems tortured by this. Remember, she's also pregnant. It's three in the morning. I don't know if I mentioned that. It's oh, also no. three in the morning, the no. day her child died. We have a lot of stressors here yeah. for in terms of interrogation. What I find interesting is the defense, their claim of innocence is the exact evidence that the prosecution leaned on. They're going to this interrogation and they're saying, no, no, no. She was deprived of food and sleep. She was pressured. And their argument focused on the interrogation, saying that it was unlawfully obtained and coerced. Remember, um, I mentioned Melissa had a long history of being abused. Yes. This was never brought into trial. The reason why this is important is because she was examined by a psychologist and a social worker, and they interviewed Melissa and members of her family. They also read through police reports and thousands of pages of CPS records. They administered psychological tests. They consulted scientific literature on women who survived longtime abuse and women who kill their children. And they concluded that Melissa's response to the interrogation showed clear symptoms of traumatic abuse in the sense that people who have been through what Melissa had been through, they're susceptible to aggressive, intimidating and psychological tactics. And we're talking about three male officers in a small room with this woman. Okay, so I didn't realize there were three male officers, too. Now, the biggest problem here is guess what? The D.A. objected to testimony and the judge agreed. So none of this came into trial. Oh, so the testimony from experts that she would have been susceptible. So, yep, the so, jury never heard so of that. So the experts were okay. prepared to testify that the reason why Melissa had slumped shoulders and bowed her head and she was expressionless, this was a sign of submission. Right. And this is what the science predicts from women who have endured a lifetime of abuse by men. That's problematic for me. I think that, so. that didn't. I have a really quick question before you go on. I know that some of her children were taken for uh, taken away for neglect. Mm-hmm. Were there signs of abuse with the other children? Zero. Okay. And we're talking nothing in reports. None of the children reported any physical abuse. No eyewitnesses. Nobody ever reported. Okay. She had no prior record of violence. And the state was, you know, leaning on the fact that she had a prior conviction for driving under the influence as a part of their aggravating evidence. A Dewey? Yeah. Uh-huh. As aggravating evidence yeah. for capital murder. Yep. I don't see the connection, but yeah. But, you know, the defense case was sorry. I didn't mean yeah. to I don't mean yeah. to minimize no, no, driving no. under the no, influence. No, of it, when we talk about aggravating factors yeah. with cases like these, they're usually like, you know, the heinous nature of the crime yep. or extreme like criminal history. So I don't see the connection on that one. No, I, th- I think most people would agree that there was a weak defense for a capital case. It's not the lawyer's fault. Obviously, a big part of the testimony was not allowed in. So the jury never heard about Melissa's history of sexual abuse, never heard about domestic violence. They also never heard from any of her children. None Mm. of her children were called to testify. And some of these children were young adults at this point, and they could have, you know, testified to the fact that she was never abusive. They all admit maybe she was neglectful. Mm -hmm. They're not going to say they had a great childhood, but they all publicly say their mom never laid a hand on them. I mean, I'm surprised that he didn't call the older children. I understand why they wouldn't call the younger children, putting them through another traumatic experience. But but they called no character witnesses either. 
So with such a weak defense, I don't think it's really a surprise that on July 3rd, 2008, the jury found Melissa guilty of capital murder. No, I'm not surprised. On July 9th, the same jury convened to decide Melissa's fate. And on July 22nd, 2008, the jury sentenced Melissa to death. So they have the choice between life in prison and death. It's the second part of a bifurcated trial. So when you the first step is deciding guilt and then they convene to decide life or death. She was the first Hispanic woman in Texas to be sentenced to death ever. Isn't that shocking? And I'm actually surprised. I looked at many sources because I didn't believe that Mm -hmm. because, you know, Texas hands out the death penalty more often than other states. And I was shocked to learn that. Anyway, in Melissa's first attempt at an appeal, the state appellate court affirmed the verdict. Okay. Then in July 2019, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit overturned the initial ruling and found that her right to a, quote, complete defense had been violated in her original trial. Oh, so she already made it from the state court to the federal system. Yeah. Got it. And they also moved to grant her habeas relief. So a writ of habeas corpus is a fundamental right in the Constitution that protects against unlawful and indefinite imprisonment. Basically, they're saying she should not be imprisoned because the trial was flawed. So this typically would mean that a new trial is granted, right? I would think so, yeah. yeah. But for more than a year, this decision stood. And then in February of 2021, the same court nullified their previous decision. Now, this time they argued that Melissa's case did not meet the, quote, high bar for federal intervention, requiring the state court to be, quote, so obviously wrong as to be beyond any possibility for fair minded disagreement. The same court did that? Yes, the same court. That doesn't make sense to me. I thought it has to go into the next level. Megan, I know this is confusing, but that's why everyone needs to stay tuned and listen to the interview with Vanessa, one of Melissa's defense attorneys, because she explains this much better than I ever could. They can. I mean, I guess the court can overrule a previous decision. They can do whatever they want. Right. It's it's usually it's a lot. It's odd but getting an appeal in itself or prevailing on an appeal in itself is odd. So So there were seven dissenting judges out of 17 and their opinion said, quote, on behalf of the seven dissenting judges, the state presented no physical evidence or witness testimony establishing that Melissa abused Mariah or any of her children, let alone killed Mariah. The jury was deprived of key evidence to weigh. That is the point. And I think that's very well said. But unfortunately, that wasn't the majority. Yeah. But I think having seven dissenting judges is a big deal. Oh, well, that's strong. But all they get is a dissenting opinion to publish. They don't get, you know, the vote. It doesn't carry the vote. So it's it's great, but not great enough to sway or change the ruling. Well, her next hope would be in the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, how likely is this, Megan? It's I mean, court of last resort. We court talk of last about that. resort. And this is a long shot. This court receives about 7,000 to 8,000 petitions each term. The court grants and hears a very small percentage. Any idea what that percentage is? Hold on. So they receive seven to 8,000. How many cases do you think they actually hear? And this is only hearing oral arguments. That doesn't even mean ruling in the favor. Three to 5%. 1%. Oh, I didn't realize it was yeah, that low. Yeah, so we're okay. talking, you know, very small odds. Okay. Unfortunately, in October of 2021, the Supreme Court had declined to hear her case. I mean, that's not surprising. So where does this leave Melissa today? On death row. Yeah, Melissa is very much on death row. I think she has a little renewed hope. Okay. When is her execution scheduled for? Because she was... April 27th, 2022. And today, as we record this, it's February 23rd, 2022. So Melissa has a lot of supporters. This is ranging from advocates for victims of domestic and gender-based violence, former prosecutors, I mean, legal scholars, innocence organization. Several amicus briefs were filed on her behalf in the last year. So amicus briefs are legal memos or documents. And often, most of the time, it's by someone who's not even directly involved in the case. And they're just offering information or expertise or some insight that might have a bearing on the issue in the case. It's really just like providing expert data or expert opinion. Yeah. Do you know what they actually stand for, the amicus? No, but I'm assuming you do. (laughs) Friends of the court. That's what it is. Yeah, that makes sense. I do remember reading that. Okay. So usually these people are taking a position on one side of the case. So it's to help um, prospective justices to make their decision by bearing on some sort of issue in the case. Right. And did you say also, sorry, did you say that the Innocence Project or any Innocence Projects take on her case as well? Yeah, so the Innocence Project, like the Innocence Project yeah. in New York, yeah, is original, very much behind her right now, and I find that oh. very interesting because it's there's no DNA. It's not a DNA case, yeah. and historically, the Innocence Project deals with DNA cases. Yeah, 
So most of these briefs are focusing on the fact that research shows that past trauma is significantly associated with heightened suggestibility among people who confess to crimes, particularly women. Mm -hmm. And also that her case exposes the legal system's failure to understand the consequences of gender-based violence. Just recently, the second week in February, so a couple of weeks ago, her lawyers filed another motion with the U.S. Supreme Court arguing that their client was denied a fair trial and that there is, quote, ample reason to believe that she was convicted in error. Mm. Now, at the same time, you have a state district court in Rio Grande Valley that's weighing a motion to withdraw or postpone the execution date. So they just need time at this point. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. If the district court does not intervene by withdrawing or postponing the execution date, I read that her attorneys plan to file a petition for clemency uh, with the Texas Board of Pardons. I this, don't think that'll prevail. I, know, so, I hate to say it, but I don't think clemency is going to prevail here. I mean, they're looking for the governor to at least halt the execution to get some more time. He can stay it, but I don't think clemency is, you know, uh, yeah. is forgiveness. So it's, you know, dismissing the but charges. But they could and- also um, think they're looking to just at this point commute the sentence. Okay. Because as we'll talk about, I'm not sure that everyone thinks that she shouldn't be held accountable for something. But I think the argument is, does she deserve to die? Yeah. So her lawyer, Vanessa Pockin, who is from the Innocence Project, she interviewed recently with The Washington Post about this case. And I just want to read a little bit about what she feels are the strongest points. points. Okay. So she points out that investigators never seriously considered other possibilities that could explain bruising and injuries to the child. Now, I'm sure you're going to be quick to say she was clearly being abused, this child. It sounds to me like she was. Yeah. It sounds like, I mean, it does. It sounds more than neglect, though. What yeah. I'm, I'm hearing is there was some type of abuse. I mean, I, so, that's what I hear. Yeah. So there was clearly abuse, but at the hands of whom I think is a big point of contention. And also, let's just say the fall down the stairs is part of the part, part of the of picture. This. Mariah had some issues when she was born. Her mother, unfortunately, was using drugs during her pregnancy. And Mariah was born with some physical abnormalities that one that her feet turned in. And she often tripped and she often fell. And she was very clumsy by a lot of accounts. So, again, she could have been abused. She could have had some of, you know, some of these bruises could have been from not self- accident, like accidental falls. We also know children, you know, like I have kids, like they have bruises all over them at all times. They bump into things. They play rough. She had so many other siblings. So I I think it's a good point that Vanessa makes that, you know, we we can't ignore other possibilities here. A lot of the children, the older siblings, admit to being rough with Mariah. One of the daughters goes as far to say that she was, you know, abusive at times with Mariah. There's a lot of other possible. Yeah, because Mariah was only half. She was only a half sister of many of these children. And some of the older children resented her and didn't feel a connection with her. And by their own admission... They say that, you know, sometimes they would do things. So, okay, a lot of people in the household. So, you know, the lawyer from the Innocence Project is focusing on the fact that the judge should not have excluded those two witnesses Mm -hmm. because their testimony was not irrelevant. In fact, it was very relevant to the case. And then this other point I just made. Now, if Texas puts Melissa to death, she will be only the sixth woman to be executed in the United States in the past decade. And she is only one of six women who are currently on death row in Texas. Right. Now, let's talk about some shady things before we get into our <laughs> I thought our we opinions. already had, but okay. No, no, there's more. There's always more. All right. Remember Armando Villalobos? Yes. He was what some would call the overzealous DA in the case? Yes. Well, he made headlines in 2014. Not a Brady violation. No, I'd say it was worse. He was sentenced to 13 years in federal prison for his role in a bribery and extortion scheme. Oh, my God. That lasted through 2006 through 2012, which includes the time that he prosecuted Melissa. That throws shade on all of his cases, too. I would say that, yes. So Mr. Villalobos accepted more than $100,000 in bribes in exchange for influence over his decisions as a district attorney. Every case then should be subject to review. Every single one. Especially those that have been sentenced to death. Absolutely. So that alone, let's ignore everything else that was said this whole episode. That's enough of a reason. That's enough. So he was ordered to pay almost $400,000 in restitution pay a $30,000 fine, place under supervised release for a period of three years after completing his prison term. In late 2020, he was transferred to community confinement, which means either in-home confinement or a residential re-entry or halfway house. His projected release date is June 18th, 2025. Okay, this isn't good. No. Yet there's more. 
Something else we might want to note, Megan, is there something going on with her original defense attorney? Oh, no. So her original defense attorney was Peter Gilman. Now, besides the fact that many say he did not adequately defend Melissa, in fact, in that documentary I told you about, he says that, you know, I don't know if she actually killed Mariah. Those kids had no discipline. They wouldn't sit still. And that would have been a turnoff to the jury. The children would not have been helpful at all. Like, he's just talking nasty. But besides that, guess where he's working now? prosecutor's office. In 2018, he joined the district attorney's office in Cameron County, where Melissa was tried. And rumor has it, he's the highest paid district attorney. Okay, so this becomes... Sorry, that's also odd for um, usually prosecutors go to defense, but I don't know that many defense who who cross over to prosecution. It's got to make you think, was was Villalobos, you know how he likes to do these bribery things? Like, I don't know, things are weird. Luckily, Melissa's legal team is privy to all this. Mm -hmm. And just last week, they went to seek a recusal of the Cameron County District Attorney's Office because that's where Peter Gilman serves as an assistant district attorney. You think that's bad? There's more. (sighs) They also are seeking a recusal for this district court judge from the case because Ira Gilman, Peter Gilman's wife, who previously worked for her husband, who was Melissa's defense counsel, is now a court administrator for that judge. Oh, my gosh. You have two key members of Melissa's defense team who are now working on the other side. Yeah. One working for the judge in the case and one working for the district attorney's office. I mean, this seems like a clear conflict of interest to me. I think to me, too. I mean, between Villa Lobos, between this, not to mention all the other issues, this is why... I I mean, we're not talking about someone who's sentenced to life. We're talking about someone who's sentenced to die in a couple of weeks. I understand, Amy. So as the Innocence Project says on their website, the Cameron County's new district attorney, the courts, the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles and Governor Abbott must undertake a meaningful review of Miss Lucio's innocence claim, the coercive tactics used in her interrogation and the tragic circumstances of Mariah's accidental death before an irreversible justice occurs. Now, the Innocence Project started a national campaign to Mm. stop this execution, and they fully are standing behind her. Okay. So they're not even standing behind the fact that they don't think she got a fair trial. They think she is actually innocent, and they Mm -hmm. think it was an accidental death. So you can add your, there's a bunch you can do. Oh, yeah. I was going to ask if there's a petition. Yeah, I don't want to tell people what to do. But if you're listening, uh, you know, I think you should do your own research. And then make your decision afterwards. Exactly. This is just an if you want to get involved. Exactly. So you can add your name to stop the execution. Sometimes this works. Some people say, like, what is that going to do if I add my name to a petition? Well, it actually, we know things happen. The more, when you have the masses getting behind something like this. So right now there's over 50,000 signatures. I'm shocked there's not more. You could go to savemelissa.org and it'll mm-hmm. take you right there. You can also share the story on social media. Hashtag Save Melissa Lucio has, you know, a lot going on. There's a few Instagram pages that we're following. Um, The Innocence Project actually has a social media toolkit that includes links to all of the websites and all of the pages that support Melissa. So so there is a lot you can do here. If you just Google Melissa Lucio Innocence Project, you will get everything and more. Got it. And we always add this in our show notes. You know, these no crime wrongful convictions, Megan, we've talked about them before. Mm -hmm. Remember Joanne Parks? Yes. Episode 20, we had Patricia Stallings, episode 35. Yes. Do you notice there's a pattern here? What, females? Females being wrongfully convicted Uh, of accidental deaths of their children. Of their children, yeah. Well, just so you know, I've I've heard this case and this is the first I'm really hearing of it. I wouldn't be prepared to go so far as I'm going to stand on like her innocence. Oh, no, that's not what I'm. Yeah, no, I'm just saying like in general, I don't know if she had some hand in it, but I can say that I think there's total reasonable doubt and I don't think she got a fair trial. So procedurally, I'd be very concerned. And Mm -hmm. on that basis alone, I would be. So this is a problem. So women, especially mothers, we see them more often accused of harming a child and they're always perceived more negatively than men. They're demonized in the media. According to the National Registry of Exonerations, one in three female exonerees were convicted of harming their child. Um, We've talked about this problem. It's because they're perceived as violating their gender role, mm -hmm. their maternal role. So they're penalized more harshly and demonized. Regardless of where you stand on the death penalty, we cannot deny that the system gets it wrong sometimes. In the U.S. since 1973 and the reinstatement of the death penalty, 186 people have been exonerated from death row. And that includes 16 people in Texas. So this is a big deal. And we know people have been posthumously exonerated as well. I don't think we need to take a chance here and 
execute this woman and then find out. I mean, she has. No, I agree. She has 13 children. I agree. That, and she's very close with her family still. They stand behind her. My biggest objection to the death penalty is fallibility. Yeah. We know that we get it wrong. And in this case, I hear plenty of um, cause for a stay of execution here. So I would I would definitely agree that we need to stay the execution. Yeah. And Megan, I agree with you. You know, I'm not here to say, was she neglectful? Was she abusive? I just think that there is overwhelming evidence that this woman should not be executed. So, Megan, it's, you know, it's clear where you stand. Yeah, and I, I think so. I know that you do a lot of work with women offenders. Does Melissa, do you think she fits the profile of someone there's, who would kill their child? She has no history of violence, keep in mind. No, there's a lot of different categories of women who kill their children, too. So there's altruistic, like, mm-hmm. you know, did it for a cause. There's the women who... That doesn't who, seem to fit. No, and then there's killing because you want them out of the way. There's killing out of abuse or mm-hmm. neglect. So in that way, she... I don't know if she, she does fit. I think she somewhat fits in that category because yeah. of the, you know, the past history that you're telling me about with her. But again, no history of physical violence. That's the part I keep. No, on. she she fits in that category uh, just like on the neglect, but possible abuse that just wasn't documented. That's um, true. I'm saying she could possibly fit in that category. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that she does. I'm not sure that she what I've heard is you're telling me I hear a case of a neglectful and possibly abusive mother. I'm just not hearing a case of, you know, uh, premeditated first-degree murder. Something I failed to mention that speaks to that, Mariah has a half-sister who spoke in this documentary, and she said that, you know, she often was the one, she often abused Mariah, and the bruises are because of her. Now, some people say that, you know, maybe Melissa is trying to protect her daughter, Oh, that's or cert- maybe her daughter's trying to protect her by saying she's the one who did it. So it's a lot of... Certainly a possibility. It could go either way, right? But again, that just creates the room for reasonable doubt. That's exactly it. It doesn't even matter. <laughs> All that matters is there's reasonable doubt and there should be a stay of execution, at ca- least. In cases like this, I mean, err on the side of caution. I, you sometimes can support the death penalty, but in a, in a case like this, when mm-hmm. there seems to be so much doubt... Life yeah. serves, you know, the the yeah. purpose of punishment. And I was pretty convinced. And just this morning, I decided to finish the documentary because I was almost done. I had a little left and yeah. I was rushing because, you know, I, I read everything I can. I know. And there was a pathologist, an expert in the documentary, and he brought up an interesting point that I hadn't heard before. And he said that if you have a brain injury, then your blood stops clotting and bruising could happen later. Right. So a lot of the bruising on her body could have been, she had a brain injury from the fall. Right. And then any little bit, he said even as little as like laying on the bed could like give you a bruise. Now you can see the pictures. There was a lot of bruising. And people even said, remember those bite marks? Mm-hmm. Other experts came in and said, no, they were wooden stairs and they were marks from the wood on the stairs. So, you know, there's, I think there's too many other possibilities mm-hmm. here. Yeah, I think there are a lot of possibilities. Still unknown. Now, as mentioned in the intro, we will hear from Vanessa Potkin, who is the director of special litigation at the Innocence Project, and she is now part of Melissa's defense team. And as you will hear, she helps us better understand the appellate process, and she also provides information about how we can best help Melissa for those of you who would like to help in some way. So, Vanessa, if you don't mind just introducing yourself and a little bit about, you know, the work that you do. I am Vanessa Potkin. I'm the director of special litigation at the Innocence Project. We're affiliated with Cardozo School of Law. And for 30 years now, we have worked to help exonerate wrongfully convicted people throughout the country. Um, Most of our early work focused on DNA evidence and helping people obtain access to testing that was unavailable at the time of their trial to um, help prove innocence. But we have also taken on a number of non-DNA cases, cases where people are innocent, um, primarily convicted based on faulty forensic evidence or other faulty medical evidence, and have litigated a host of issues around wrongful convictions to help exonerate innocent people nationwide. It's my understanding that the Innocence Project historically had focused on non on only DNA cases. And obviously you've pivoted to now 
um, non-DNA cases such as Melissa's case. Is there a certain criteria? Um, you know, the bar is so high for the cases that you take. You have so many cases coming in and you don't have, you know, you only have so many people, so many hours in a day. What is it about Melissa's case that you felt when the Innocence Project felt was so important to get behind? The Innocence Project saw the urgency that Texas is on the verge of executing an innocent woman. And so once um, the state of Texas set this execution date, just recently, Innocence Project joined Melissa Lucio's legal team. We had been aware of Melissa's case. Last summer, we filed an amicus brief, a friend of the court brief, when she was trying to petition to the United States Supreme Court to review her conviction because she was prohibited at trial from presenting pretty critical evidence to the defense. And a panel of the Fifth Circuit had actually ruled that she was prevented from presenting a full and meaningful defense at her trial and should should get a new trial, that her original trial wasn't fair. And so if you just think about that, that, you know, a couple years ago, she was on the verge of getting a new trial, and now she's on the verge of being executed without ever having that fair day in court. And so, you know, when we heard an execution date had set, you know, knowing the issues of her in her case, knowing that there was this immediate rush to judgment, that the medical evidence had not been fully explored, and that she had been subjected to such a coercive interrogation, you know, we saw the risk factor that that somebody innocent could be executed. You mentioned it a little bit, but where exactly is Melissa in the appeals process? Like what appeals has she lost? This is a pretty, you know, complicated, convoluted part of the law. But Melissa filed her direct appeals and then she went through a process called state post-conviction and then was unsuccessful and went into federal court. And really the issue that she was presenting had to do with her ability to present certain witnesses at trial that had been kept out. And essentially, she, within two hours of her child's death, she was brought into an interrogation room and she was berated, questioned, threatened, told she was a horrible mother, that she was responsible for her daughter's death over the course of, you know, five hours. And really a key person involved in her interrogation was a Texas Ranger who came in and he wasn't there at the very beginning of the interrogation, but entered, you know, shortly thereafter and said that he observed her body language and he could tell that she was guilty because she was looking down and she was slumped and just based on her behavior, he knew that she was guilty. And I you know, should just point out that that is a big problem in, in wrongful conviction cases, especially that involve false confessions that we see. You know, it's called a misclassification error where police determine that they think that you're guilty and then start the process of interrogation. And interrogation is not question and answer, right? It's this guilt presumptive, very coercive, deliberate questioning and process that is designed to elicit an admission. And it is coercive by nature because, you know, it only kicks in once police decide that you're guilty. Of course, if they make a mistake, then the problem is, you know, using these highly coercive techniques, you end up having an innocent person, you know, make false admissions like happened here. And so in Melissa's case, the issue that went before the federal court was that the you had an officer testify that he could tell that she was guilty by reading her behavior because she didn't look at him and she was looking down and slumped. And Melissa sought to present evidence regarding her trauma history. You know, she was sexually abused as a child. She was the victim of domestic violence. And we know as a matter of neuroscience today that PTSD and that history and those experiences can have an influence on reaction and disassociation and, you know, certain behaviors that were misinterpreted to be, you know, indicative of guilt here. But even putting that aside, you know, we should just note that this notion that people could be human lie detectors and that you know, an officer can tell if somebody's being honest or not. That is just, that's been put to scientific study and it's failed, right? It's like people are, you know, no better than tossing a coin at, you know, determining if somebody's telling the truth or not. So, 
But but in Melissa's case, the the officer was permitted to come in at trial and say, I know she was guilty because she was looking down. And she wasn't permitted to present evidence about her trauma history or her life experiences that would have shaped her reaction so that the jury could put her reactions in context. And you had a panel of federal judges on the Fifth Circuit who said Melissa was denied her constitutional right to present a meaningful defense. Well, this was a unanimous three-judge opinion, but the state of Texas appealed. And they asked for what's called en banc review, which means you don't just get the panel of judges that's hearing your case. You ask for the full court to consider the case. So then this Melissa's case went to the 17 members of the Fifth Circuit. And what I think is really important here is that 10 of those judges found that the exclusion of that testimony really skewed the evidence against Melissa and that she hadn't had a fair trial. Unfortunately, three of those 10 also joined the majority and said because of what we call EDPA or the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, we are prohibited as federal judges from reviewing the state court's judgment in this case. So basically what they were saying is we agree that she suffered an injustice, but because of procedural rules, we can't touch this case. The Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act was just a law that was put into place in the 90s after the Oklahoma City bombing. And so that's kind of what terrorism and death penalty was kind of appealing to people in the South who really wanted to make sure that death sentences were carried out quicker. And so it was a reform, um, quote unquote, of habeas corpus law. And what it did was set certain limits on federal courts and what cases they could hear. And that's really significant because You know, when you look at statistics and cases that went through state appellate review, there's a certain percentage that are overturned. And then of the cases that are not overturned, they go on to federal review. And federal habeas corpus has always been a safeguard, you know, for people sentenced to death, for people sentenced to other terms of imprisonment. And it's it's an opportunity when the state court misses it and state courts miss it a lot you know, to get your case heard where you have not had a constitutional or a fair trial. And unfortunately, ADIPA, this law passed in the 90s, really restricted the ability of federal courts to hear cases after state court review. And so it really set, it set, you know, very strict time limits on when cases can be brought, and it set standards of deference to the trial courts that are really hard to overcome. And so her conviction stood. And she went from that moment of like having an opportunity to actually have a fair trial to on the road that where we are now, where she has an execution date just around the corner. As you mentioned, we're getting very close to Melissa's execution date. What would have to happen to save this woman's life short of a pardon? Well, there could be a pardon. We do believe that we also have vehicles to get back into court. And so it's For Melissa not to be executed is either going to take an act on the part of the governor of Texas or the court of criminal appeals in Texas, essentially, to, you know, to step in and and make sure this execution doesn't go forward. So it sounds like the goal right now is not to have a full exoneration. The goal is to save Melissa's life and then worry about the exoneration after. Is that correct? I mean, it's correct in the sense that there's such an urgency that we face right now with this execution date in place. And if Melissa's executed, you know, we can't, I mean, she she could be exonerated afterwards, but, you know, the harm can never be undone. And so that is the first goal to make sure that, you know, that Texas doesn't take this irreversible act. But she she does deserve to have a fair trial and she does deserve for all of the evidence to be considered in this case. You know, what happened to Melissa, we see in so many wrongful conviction cases where police make a rush to judgment immediately. You know, they immediately decided that this was murder and they never considered any other explanation for injuries that they attributed to abuse. They didn't look at Melissa's medical history. You know, they didn't look at her history of falling. They didn't consider anything else because they had determined that this this was a murder. 
So when you say um, other than getting a governor pardon, you know, getting back into court now, what actually has to happen? I know there's been these briefs filed, but who's looking at it and when? There's already some litigation going on. Um, There's been a motion filed to withdraw the execution date so that additional work can be done on the case. There's also a motion pending to recuse the district attorney on the case. The district attorney previously was a judge and actually was the judge um, when Melissa was arraigned. So there are some, you know, additional conflicts. And so those motions are pending. In addition to that, there's other actions that could be taken in state court, the highest court and the only court in Texas that has the power to vacate Melissa's conviction would be the Court of Criminal Appeals. You know, certainly a stay could be issued. She could receive a pardon. There could be um, actions taken that would allow for, you know, her claims of innocence and other claims in the case to be fully investigated and brought forth to a a fact finder. So this last question is kind of two prong. Number one, how important is public support, really public pressure in these types of cases? And what can we do as the public to help? Public pressure is essential in stopping wrongful executions like Melissa's, because at the end of the day, it may come down to an elected official who feels responsible to you know, act in the interests of the people that he represents. And so everybody's voice matters. If you're in Texas, it's like extra important to take action and to make phone calls because the governor is the ultimate, you know, decision maker at this point. And also any elected official throughout the state you know, has influence and is going to feel accountable to the the people that they represent. So I think that there's a special call to action for people who are in Texas to reach out to their lawmakers, to call the DA who's in charge of Melissa's case, to, you know, make their opinions heard to the governor. So it's, it's critical that, you know, our public officials understand what the people that they represent want. And it's not just the governor of Texas. It's you know, throughout the state of Texas, elected officials, it's throughout really the country, you know, that understanding what people are behind, I think, makes a huge difference to decision makers. So your voice matters. We, you know, want people to, you know, stay up to date on Melissa's case, go to, you know, innocenceproject.org, get information about Melissa's case, and we will have calls to action at different points. And so I think that, you know, staying informed and being a partner with us when there are actions to take is really helpful. It can make a difference. We've seen it make a difference. We've had clients who, you know, were within five days of being executed. If you look at, you know, Rodney Reed's case, for example. And so it really, you know, makes a difference for people to be active and actively involved. And IP's website makes it very easy for people. And we told our listeners in the first half of the show, we're going to have links to it in our show notes as well, so that people will make it very easy for people to support. Um, So things like change.org petitions, those things matter, would you say? The reason why we, you know, tell people to go to the innocenceproject.org website, or you can go directly to savemelissa.org. Um, again, savemelissa.org. Sometimes there are a number of petitions out there and Innocence Project is, you know, trying to make sure that it's condensed in one place and so that, you know, the power of people's action isn't diluted. So we, you know, really encourage you to go to savemelissa.org. And so we're just capturing all of the support in one place. That's very helpful because I think sometimes in these cases, you feel so helpless. So you just are, you're signing petitions, you're clicking things. And if it's not centralized, who's it helping? So that's very useful. And we'll make sure to highlight that the more people that can be made aware of this, you know, hopefully we can collectively, you know, save this woman's life. Vanessa, thank you so, so, so much. All right. Well, there'll be several links in the show notes. Excellent. Again, please, you know, look into this case, retweet it, sign the petition, write to Governor Abbott, do whatever you can. And I really hope to be doing 
an update episode reporting that Melissa received this stay of execution. At the very least. Yep. Amy, thank you so much for this case. And thanks to our listeners. Thank you so much. And we'll catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show while gaining access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include The Innocence Project, The State of Texas versus Melissa, Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom, The Houston Chronicle, Texas Public Radio, The Washington Post, TexasCourts.gov, Justia, Texas Monthly, DeathPenaltyInfo.org, and DeathPenaltyWorldwide.org. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.